Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. Lord, you are faithful. I am blown away by the faithfulness of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Steve, I'm going to be in Philippians. Jesus, we love you. (laughs) Oh, two people. Two people made Jesus their Lord today. It's a big stinking deal. Jesus said heaven. (laughs) Jesus said heaven took their eyes off the lamb for a second to celebrate every time a sinner gave their life to Jesus. That's a big stinking deal, man. I feel like I'm supposed to say something before I get to the message. In in Acts 2, in Acts 2, there's a prophecy where Joel says, there's a fulfillment of a prophecy where Joel says, hey, the spirit of the Lord's going to be poured out and your sons and daughters are going to prophesy and there's going to be dreams and visions and there's going to be wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and smoke and the moon's going to turn to blood and none of that happens. None of that happens. And Peter stands up and says, this is that. Peter stands up and says, this is that. Nobody prophesies the moon doesn't turn to blood. And, but something in Peter says, this is the beginning. This is the beginning. And six months or so ago, the apostle and Sister Hall and Matt went down to Florida and they watched as people rushed the front of a church in Orlando and gave their life to Jesus. And they said, we got we to gotta preach the gospel. And no doubt when they saw that, they thought people are going to rush the front. We're going to have hundreds, dozens lining the front. And that didn't happen this morning. But I want to tell you, by the Spirit, that this is that. I want you to know. I want you to know, this is that. These two, this is that. It's not almost that. It's not kind of that. It's not somewhat that. This is that. This is that. There's no blood and there's no fire and the moon's not... The moon's not darkened and there's not signs in the heavens above. But Peter said, this is that. There's a bunch of drunk people walking out in the streets. And Peter said, this is exactly what Joel was talking about. I want you to know, this is exactly what you saw. This is exactly what you saw. It's not kind of it. This is exactly what you saw. It is the doorway into exactly what they saw. We have stepped into exactly what he's called us to step into. Exactly what he's called us to step into. And we're going to see the fullness of it. The fullness of it. Thank you for your faithfulness, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. I'm in Philippians 3 today. I want to talk about Jesus. Is that okay? All right, let's talk about Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 7. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as lost because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view 
of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as mere rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So that I may gain Christ. It messes me up. I want to talk to you this morning about Christ our goal. Christ our goal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done in this house this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you've come so close. And Lord, we thank you that you're moving amongst your people, that you've drawn us into this place where you have chosen to use us for whatever reason. And Lord, we thank you that you have a word for your people this morning. Lord, I ask that you would speak. I ask that this good seed of the kingdom would fall into good soil, that we would tenderly care for what you want to give to us, and that it would produce good fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold, in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians, it's an awesome book. Philippians is written by Paul at the end of his life. Uh, we believe pretty pretty good, uh, we've got pretty good reports that tell us that Philippians is written as one of the last epistles that Paul writes. So the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are the last books that Paul writes. We are pretty sure that Philippians is the book that comes right before those, or the letter that comes right before those. So Paul is not a, um, a young Christian when he's writing Philippians. Paul is not just starting out in the faith. Paul is not just getting started with his ministry. He has not just had his um, encounter with Jesus. He is not just getting ready to plant some churches. He is very mature in the faith. He's at the end of his life. He's getting ready to go and die. We would find out in his letters to Timothy that Paul knows he's getting ready to die. He would say to Timothy, I'm ready to be poured out like a drink offering. I know my end is near. I know my time is at hand. So this is the very end of Paul's life. And he is writing from prison where he knows like this is it. I'm not getting out. This is the end of this is the end of the line. And from prison, he is dispersing his final thoughts, his final impartations through his letters. Okay, so here in Philippians three, Paul is is writing to this church at Philippi, and he um, he in the first part of Philippians three, he kind of gives his resume, which Paul does a couple of times in his letters. But he's talking about who he was in the flesh. He's talking about all of the things he accomplished talking about being circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, Paul's like, listen, if somebody's got reason to brag in the flesh, I've got reason to brag in the flesh. I've, I've accomplished all the stuff. I've checked all the boxes. I've, I've, I've filled out all the forms. I've done all the stuff in the flesh that you can do. And then we come to verse 7 where he says, but... Whatever things were gained to me, in other words, all the things from my past, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss because of Christ. So whatever I've accomplished in the past, all that stuff that I just listed off, all the things from my previous lifestyle, in one book Paul would say I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, all of that stuff I counted as loss. But then Paul says, more than that, Okay, so all the stuff I have accomplished, I counted as loss. But more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Okay, so 
again, the scene is Paul's in prison. He knows he's not getting out of prison. This is the end of the line for Paul. And Paul says, everything that I have accomplished, that's lost. But more than that, more than everything I have accomplished, I count everything else also as lost. What's more than all Paul has accomplished? All Paul is accomplishing or all Paul will accomplish. Does that make sense? Like just thinking through it logically? If everything Paul has accomplished, he counts as loss. And then more than that, the more than that has to be the stuff Paul will accomplish. Does that make sense? Okay. If Paul's locked in prison and Paul can't get out of prison and Paul knows he's not getting out of prison and he's going to die, he's going to go from prison to the executioner's table, what is Paul going to accomplish? What is Paul going to accomplish? In the flesh, nothing, right? Paul can accomplish nothing in the flesh. There's nothing left for Paul to accumulate to himself in the flesh. All of the things that were in the past, that was all fleshly stuff. Paul said, all of that fleshly stuff, that's all I counted as a loss. But the stuff I'm accomplishing now and the stuff I'm going to accomplish, that's different. Because I can't accomplish fleshly stuff here in this prison. So Paul, Paul is saying something different about the stuff that is going to be accomplished. That stuff is different. What can Paul accomplish in prison? I know we've got to think about it for a second. What can Paul accomplish for prison? Only spiritual things, right? Only spiritual things. Paul can only write, I say only, but like it ends up in the canon of Scripture, only write epistles and have revelations and have visions and have dreams and encounters. And Paul says, I count that as loss. I count that as loss, and I would say, what? You count visions and dreams and encounters and epistles to your sons and daughters in the faith? And Paul says, I count all of that as loss. Why? Because I hold it in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Because Paul had an understanding that everything... Not just the stuff of the flesh, not just the stuff of the world, but even the stuff of the kingdom has to be held within the view of knowing Christ Jesus. Because even kingdom stuff, if not held within the view of knowing Christ, will become idolatrous. Even the stuff he gave me, if I don't hold it within the view of knowing Jesus, I'll put it on a pedestal and I'll make it an idol. And if you don't believe me, this is the example I gave at nine. If you don't believe me, check out what some folks on Facebook do with some of the gifts that Jesus gave them. Check out what people do with some of the gifts that Jesus gave them. They'll take a prophetic gift, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody because I'm not, I'm not. But they'll take a prophetic gift that the Lord gave them, and you won't hear the name Jesus but once every couple months when they're trying to raise up money. The gifts and callings of God are what? Without repentance. In other words, He won't take back what He's given to you. It'll just break His heart. But the gifts and callings of God are meant to draw you into deeper intimacy. And Paul says, even if I go up to the third heavens again, I will hold it within this view of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because I refuse to let a revelation that I saw of a golden street or a gate of pearl surpass the worth of knowing the man with holes in his hands. I refuse to let that happen. I refuse to let that happen. In Exodus, 
Israel comes out of Egypt, or Israel comes out of Egypt. They come through the Red Sea. Moses goes up on a mountain, and for forty days and nights, he's gone, and they think he's dead because his cell phone runs out of battery, and they can't get a hold of him. That's a joke for everyone who's too young to know that he didn't have a cell phone. It's the it's the commercial thing that you did a couple weeks ago. So Moses is up on the mountain. Oh God, Moses is up on the mountain. They can't find Moses. They tell Aaron, make for us an idol that we can worship it. Make for us a God that we can worship it. And Aaron says, no problem. So Aaron fashions a calf out of gold. Do you know where the gold came from? They all gathered it together from the camp of Israel. Do you know where Israel got the gold? They got it from Egypt. Do you know what the gold was supposed to be used for? God tells them. When Moses comes down from the mountain, God says, Hey, take a collection from the people of the congregation, from all of their stuff. I want everyone to give out of the willingness of their heart. Give what? The only, they're slaves. The only thing they have is the stuff that's been given to them. He says, I want you to take a collection. Give out of the goodness of your heart to this collection. What are we supposed to do with it? Make for me a dwelling place so that I can dwell among you. Make for me a dwelling place. What do they make with it? They make the tabernacle. They take all of the gifts, the gold, the silver, the fine linen of Egypt, and they create the tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness. And part of the gold that was meant to be a dwelling place for God was used to create an idol. And that's what we do with the gifts. That's what we do with the callings. That's what we do with the anointings when they are not held within the view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It has to be held within the view of knowing Jesus. Is it awesome to be called to the fivefold? No. <laughs> but yes, yes, it is. That's what I meant. Yes. Yes, that would be awesome to be called to the fivefold, to be given gifts of the Holy Spirit, to be anointed, to be used as a minister, to be sent into prisons, to be, to be a doctor, a nurse, or a lawyer, or a school teacher, to be, to be someone who works at a grocery store and to pray for those who come through you. That's incredible. That's awesome. That's a ministry that God has given you. But if you don't hold it within the view of knowing Christ Jesus, that thing will become the idol of your life and you will worship praying for people. You will worship ministering to people. You will worship loving on people. You will worship it when you're supposed to worship the one who hung on a tree, who died with holes in his hands and his feet. But if you hold ministering to people in the scales of the one who the highest heavens cannot contain, you ain't got to worry about worshiping that thing. If you look in the face of the one who Paul said the knowledge of the glory of God is hidden in the face of Christ Jesus, you ain't got to worry because there is no comparison. The scales cannot hold him. The scales cannot hold him. So it has to be held within the view. Within the view. It's not that the gifts are bad. Because that's what the other end of the pendulum is. Right? We live in a pendulum society. And that's what the other end of the pendulum is. One end of the pendulum is idolatry. The other end of the pendulum is, abs is I don't want anything to do with it. Absolutely not. Stay away from it. Because I might fall into idolatry. No. I just hold it in view of. I don't avoid it. It's a gift. 
How rude would it be for me to give my children a gift and them to say, I don't want it, throw it in the trash. I'd be pretty upset. I worked hard for the money that I used to pay for that gift. I love to watch my kids open gifts. Christmas is my favorite because I'm a gift giver. I love giving gifts. I'm very bad about waiting until the appropriate time to give the gifts. And so often I give gifts and then have to go get more gifts to give. I'm bad about it. The first, the first I shouldn't tell the story, but the first year we were married, our birthdays are in December, so we get to double up. I get to double up giving gifts. The first year we were married, I gave all the gifts like a week before Lauren's birthday. And by all the gifts, I mean birthday and Christmas. And then I had to go and get more gifts, and we had no money. And it's the Lord Jesus that we survived because he's good like that. He said, give and it shall be given. Um, Where was I? Help me, Lord. We don't throw away and put in the trash the gifts he gives us. We don't do that. We hold them in view of his worth. Because when they are held in view of his worth, we see the appropriate measure with which they should be held. All right. Okay. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Uh, There's a comma here. Oh, geez. For whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them as mere rubbish. In... um, In writing, we would call that a non-essential clause. In other words, Paul gave us some information we didn't necessarily need to fulfill that sentence. In other words, Paul is is just adding to the context there. He's giving you his experience. He's like, listen, by the way, not only do I count it as loss, I I count it as rubbish. It is, I think King James Version, it's dung. It's not just loss. He says, I do all these things, I count them all as loss, I put them in view of Christ so that I may gain Christ. So that I may gain Christ. Does Paul not have Christ? How did Paul send Timothy to Ephesus if he didn't have Christ? How did Paul get the Macedonian call to go over to Macedonia if he didn't have Christ? How did Paul sing until the jail cell flew open if he didn't have Christ? How did Paul in Acts 19 rip off parts of his clothes and send them and demons would come running out of people and extraordinary miracles happen if he didn't have Christ? Paul had Christ, but Paul had an understanding that set him apart, that made him a first among equals. You understand what I mean when I say first among equals? There are apostles, but when Paul got in the room with a group of apostles, Paul was in charge. Paul stood out. Why? Not because Paul was more gifted or talented or anointed. Maybe he had some more gifting. But here's what made Paul stand out. Paul lived with an insatiable appetite for more of Jesus. He refused to be satisfied with the level of Jesus that he had. When I say level of Jesus, um, I have to be careful. When you get saved, you got all of Jesus. You don't get one-third of Jesus when you get saved. You got all of Jesus. But as you progress in Jesus, you learn to yield to more of Him in your life. When I'm saying more of Jesus, what I'm actually saying is Jesus having more of you. It's just easier to say, it's, it's actually just easier to linguistically communicate more of Jesus. But Paul lived with this appetite where he could not get enough of the man who met him on the road to Damascus. He couldn't. He lived with a purpose to have more of Jesus. 
to have more of Jesus in his life, to be more submitted, more yielded, more committed to Jesus. And that's what made him stand out. Paul constantly talks about maturing in Christ, growing in Christ, going from glory to glory in Christ, gaining Christ. Why? Because Paul understood that there is more of him available than what I've got. I don't care how far you've made it. There's more of Jesus available than what you have. There's more. There's more. I don't care if you've been saved a hundred years and been on the deacon board. There's more of Jesus available. There's more. There is more of Jesus available. I heard a preacher recently say, there is more of Jesus hidden than has ever been revealed. And that's why it will take eternity for us to find all of Him. Because He will never fully be revealed. And Paul said, I must gain Christ. He's not talking about dying and gaining Christ when he sees Him face to face. That is one aspect of it. But here in this life, Paul is saying, there is Christ to gain. For this church, and for Paul, and for your house, and for the apostles, and for Winchester, and for Richmond, and for them, and for us, there is Christ to gain. There is Christ to gain. There's more. We have seen mighty acts and mighty moves and mighty miracles and the wind and the fire of God. And there's more. And there's more. He has not exhausted himself yet. He has not reached the end of himself yet. That I may gain Christ. Verse 9. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, Paul says, and I don't get to him because I've done all the right stuff. I don't get to him because I'm good enough. I don't get to him because I've accomplished enough. I only get to him because Christ is enough. And my faith is in Christ. That's the only way we get to him. It's not because I've come to church enough. It's only because Christ died and took on my sin and allowed me to put on his righteousness. That's the only reason. It's the only way I get to him. We get into the kingdom by grace through faith. And that is the way we live life in the kingdom is by grace through faith. One of the traps of the Christian life is... None of us, well, I don't want to say none of us. Most of us in this room would believe, would, would believe that we come into the kingdom by grace through faith. But lots of us in this room would have a hard time believing that the rest of the Christian life is lived by grace through faith. We would all agree that we're saved by grace through faith. But then the rest of it, well, we got to work for it. I'm not saying be lazy, but what I am saying is it's by grace through faith. If you come in the door by grace through faith, you've got to live the rest of the life by grace through faith. Because if you weren't good enough to get saved, you're not good enough to grow in Christ. If you're not good enough to be born into Christ, you're not good enough to gain Christ. Does that make sense? It is by grace through faith, not by works. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. Now listen, we yield to the grace and we yield to the faith and we surrender to it. And yes, there is participation on our, on our behalf. But we do not 
we are not the ones who are the motor or the engine that gets us through this Christian life. He is the one. We are resting in His work. We're resting in His ability. We're resting in His finished promise that it is finished. All of it is finished. Not just the doorway in. All of the Christian life is finished. We come in by grace through faith. We live by grace through faith. And we go out the door by grace through faith. Again, I said at 9 a.m., nobody stands at death's door and declares, here's my tithe sheet. Here's my attendance record. Here's all the things I've done for the kingdom. Death doesn't care about that. It's the last enemy defeated, and it is defeated by grace through faith. By grace through faith. Only Christ and His work is enough to move us through this life. Not my righteousness. Not one that comes by the law, but one that comes by His finished work. One that comes by His finished work. And if it comes by His finished work, then it's enough for me to gain Christ. And it's enough for me to gain Christ. Verse 10, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Okay. I believe verse 10, Philippians 3.10, is how Paul gained Christ. I believe Philippians 3.10 is how Paul gained Christ. Paul said, I've got to gain Christ. And I believe Philippians 3.10 is how Paul gained Christ. He said, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. What does that mean? What does it mean to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection? It means for the reality of His finished work to become a reality in my life. Let me tell you what I mean. When you come into the kingdom, in salvation, that becomes a reality in your spirit, man. Your sins are washed away. Does that make sense? You get saved. You make a confession, a public confession. Two folks have done it in this room today. You make a public confession. In your spirit, man, your sins are washed away. The power of His resurrection has become a reality on the inside of you. But how many of you know, just because your sins are washed away, your emotions are not yet yielded to the power of the resurrection? Yes? Yes? Just me? All right, there it is. Your flesh is not yet yielded to the power of the resurrection. It's called sanctification. And the more we grow in Christ, or can I say gain Christ, the more we come into the fullness of knowing Christ the more the power of the resurrection is meant to become a reality. Not a concept, a reality. You ought to be further along today than you were 10 years ago. You ought to be. Things that made you blow up 10 years ago, they shouldn't make you blow up today. Why? Because the reality of His resurrection should be more real in your life. What is his resurrection? It declares that sin and all its effects, the fall, has no power. That's what it did. De- there were three people. Do you know that's what his resurrection says? His resurrection doesn't just say you don't have to go to hell. His resurrection says sin has no power. That's what it says. If you don't know that, we got to do that for a minute. His resurrection says sin has no power. Power. When he got up, he said, Death cannot hold him and the grave cannot contain him. One who had no spots, no blemishes, no stains, no marks, laid down and put himself in the arms of the Father, believing that death couldn't hold on to him. And the Father said, Get up 
And when he got up, he got up for you and as you. Because Paul said, as you die with him, you are raised with him. And you died to your sin and raised to newness of life. You didn't just get out of hell. You died to your sin. And you raised to the newness of life. So as the power of His resurrection becomes more of a reality in your life, more and more and more of your sin dies. And more and more and more of His life becomes alive in you. Does that make sense? Okay. You are dead to sin. I want you to know this morning, you're dead. You're dead to sin. You are not dying to sin. You are dead to sin. You are not in the process of dying to sin. You're in the process of being conformed into His image. But you are dead to sin. Don't believe the lie that one day you'll be dead to sin. One minister said, if, one minister said, if death, natural death, if natural death sets me free from my sin, then death was my Savior and not Jesus. I feel Jesus now. You're dead to sin. So the power of his resurrection, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection, his resurrection becomes more and more and more real as I live this life. Every day I go into prayer. Jesus, those people are so annoying, and I don't, I don't know how to deal with them. And I yield to his life, and his resurrection power erupts on the inside of me. And he says, well, pray for them then. I don't want to do that. And he says, good, that means you need to. So I pray for them. And I pray for him, and I pray for him, and all of a sudden, love burns on the inside of me. And a week goes by, and a month goes by, and a year goes by. And all of a sudden, what used to make me so mad, I wanted to throw something. Now, it doesn't happen anymore. And something else makes me so mad, I want to throw something. So we go to work on that. So we go to work on that. And the resurrection power of Jesus transforms me. And I am conformed into the image of His Son. I'm not just living life to get through. I'm actually changed to be like him. And that's how I gain Christ. Okay. He says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. That I might share in his sufferings. <sighs> I might share in his sufferings. What does it mean to share in his sufferings? That word to share, it means to fellowship or to partake. It's translated communion in a couple of different translations. It is, it's a couple different things, I believe. It is, it is to meditate on the sufferings of the Lord. It's to remember the sufferings of the Lord. It's to think about the sufferings of the Lord. Yes, but it's more than that. It's to yield to whatever sufferings He has for me. It's to yield to whatever sufferings He has for me. And I know that's not yelling and shouting, preaching, but it's part of gaining Jesus. He is the suffering servant. Hebrews says this, Hebrews 10.32, Remember the former days when after being enlightened you suffered, you endured, sorry, a great conflict of sufferings. Here it is. Partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress. Insults and distress. You know Jesus doesn't need you to be tied to a tree for him to count it as suffering. He doesn't need you to be tied to a tree. He counts the insults against you as sufferings. Now listen, if Jesus has called you to be tied to a tree, he'll give you grace for that. I'm not trying to be a downer this morning. I'm just trying to tell you the gospel. This is part of the gospel too. 
If Jesus called you to be tied to a tree, there's grace for that. But I'm not telling you to go look for it. I'm telling you there are sufferings in this life. Some of them are insults. Some of them are snide comments. Some of them are people turning their back on you and walking out on you. Some of them are friends that you will lose in pursuit of Jesus. But Jesus counts it as sufferings. And listen to this. Listen to this. Jesus says, hey, those friends that you, Jesus says those friends that you lost because you came after me. The friends that you lost because you came after me. When you did that, you were standing at the whipping post with me. You were standing at the tree with me. It is the fellowship of his sufferings. It is not just fellowship in suffering. It is the fellowship of his sufferings. When they insulted you and called you crazy told you you were a lunatic and you've lost your mind, Jesus said you were standing on Mount Calvary with me. With me. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. How am I conformed to his death? I take up my cross. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Yes, I take up my cross when I say yes to the gospel. When I say yes to Jesus and I say yes to salvation. But the more I follow Jesus, the better I get at taking up my cross. Because I have learned in following Jesus that yes, I took up the cross when I decided to follow him. But I find places to set it down. I find places to sit it down along the way. And when I'm conformed to him and his death, it is a daily journey where I learn more efficiently to carry the cross like him. Regardless of what the circumstance, regardless of my feelings or my emotions. So that I can gain Christ. I can gain Christ. Verse 11, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul said, I'm going to gain him in this life and I'm going to gain him in the one to come. I'm almost finished, I promise. Verse 12, not that I have already grasped it all or I've already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now hang on a second. We use this verse to talk about like dreams and goals and promises a lot. Like this is the verse we, we talk about when like we get a word and we're pressing on towards the word. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Not that I have already grasped it all or have already become perfect. What's the context? Gaining Christ. I haven't grasped it all or have become perfect in what? In gaining Christ. But I press on. If I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? I was, I'm pressing on towards that which I was taken a hold of. If you're pursuing Jesus, it's not because you just woke up and decided one day to pursue Jesus. It's because Jesus grabbed a hold of your heart and began to squeeze on it. Until love for him started to ooze out. Nobody, nobody can stir up love for God on their own. 
Only God can pour love into your heart for Him and then stir it up. You can position yourself, but you can't create love for God. He said, I was taking a hold of this thing. This thing took a hold of me for, by Christ Jesus. Christ Himself took a hold of me, and now I'm in pursuit of this thing. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I don't regard myself as taking a hold of it yet. Yet, I love that, yet. Paul's in prison, ready to die, ready to be poured out like a drink offering. And he's like, listen, I'm not there yet, but I'm going to get there. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One more time. The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The call of God. The goal for the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was, that's what Paul said his call was. Was to pursue Jesus. I think if you asked us to summarize what Paul's call was. We would say to be an apostle. To instruct sons and daughters. To apostolically oversee a network to impart, to preach, to teach, to display the kingdom, to write epistles. Paul said, my call is to pursue the upward call of Christ Jesus. Paul, who accomplished all these things, who saw visions of heaven that were so glorious that he couldn't even write them down. He said, the call of God on my life is to pursue Jesus. Can I submit to you that the call of God for your life is to pursue Jesus? And there's other stuff. But the call of God for your life is to pursue Jesus. And you'll find the other stuff when you find Jesus. And often we pursue the other stuff, hoping to find Jesus along the way. And we miss Jesus. And we find opportunity. And we think we found Jesus. Only to find out Years down the road, we never found Jesus and have to start over again. But if you'll find Jesus, you'll find whatever he's called you to. How can you find Jesus and not find what he's called you to? If you're staring at his face, how can you not see what he's looking at? The upward call of God, Christ Jesus. Stand with me. Lord is so gracious. He's so gracious. He, uh, his life is getting ready to end and he's in the garden praying and he 
he says to the three, he asks them, hey, can't you stay awake? And they're asleep, of course. And, and he says, well, time's up now. And he says, my betrayer is at hand. And uh, the next scene, a couple verses go by, and Judas walks over, says, Rabbi. And he walks up and he kisses him. And, uh, of course, you know the rest of the story. They put Jesus in chains. They arrest him. And Jesus knew what Judas was there for. Jesus knew what Judas was there for. And Jesus knew what that kiss was going to lead to. And Jesus let Judas close enough to kiss him. That's how tender his heart is. That's how much he longs to be close to the people he loves. Even if he's absolutely sure it's going to end up breaking his heart. And um, I know I've been guilty of it. And I think many of us have been guilty of it before. That we've taken what he's given to us. And it's, we've twisted it or turned it or contorted it. Used it. Not to draw close to him, but to benefit us. To be an advantage for us. To open a door for us. Maybe it's to provide finances for us. To get us likes or comments or shares or to have somebody notice us. I just, I, I feel like I'm supposed to say this morning that the Lord's not upset. Can we just bow our heads this morning? I feel like I'm supposed to say this morning that the Lord's not upset with us. That He loves us dearly and deeply. More than we could ever imagine. That He knew before it all ever went haywire. And he was willing to take the risk anyways. And he's not got his arms folded, upset, frustrated. And he hasn't turned a cold shoulder like I would do. Because he's better than that. He's got his arms wide open. He's got his arms wide open this morning. And I feel like there's a an invitation, not just an invitation, but grace this morning. Grace is, a, is not just a, a cool church word. It is actually the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do what you're unable to do. I feel like there's grace in the room this morning to repent of maybe where we have taken what was meant to draw us closer to Him and used it for our own good. And if and I, I don't want to embarrass anybody because I'm, I'm, I'm going to raise my hand. But if that would, if you would just say, man, I've been in that camp. Would you just slip your hand up this morning? I've been there before. Man, I've been there before. If that's you this morning, I just want to invite you. I want to invite you this morning to, to talk to Jesus. Not to talk into the air, but to talk to Jesus. Jesus is here. The man, Jesus. The one who was nailed to a tree. And there's an open invitation 
with open arms. Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry for the times that we haven't held the gifts, the benefits, the blessings that you've given us. We haven't held them in proper view. Jesus, we repent for the times that we've looked to opportunity. We've looked for open doors or we've looked for stuff to come our way. Rather than looking at what you gave as a chance to draw close to you. Jesus, we thank you that you're here this morning. Lord, I thank you that you're here this morning with open arms. You're not frustrated. You're not upset. You're not angry. But you're here to love on your people. Lord, I ask that you would give us fresh eyes. Fresh eyes to behold you. To hold our lives, to hold our stuff in view of knowing you. Lord, that we might gain Jesus. We want to gain you, Jesus. Lord, I know we're further than we used to be. I know we're further than we used to be, but we want to gain you, Jesus. I want to gain you, Jesus. I want more of you. If Paul said from a prison at the end of his life that there was more of you available then surely there's more of you available for me. Surely there's more of you available for me, Jesus. I want more of you for my house, for my family, for my neighborhood, for my workplace. Lord, I want more of you. For this church, Lord, I want more of you. For this city, I want more of you, Jesus. We need more of you, Jesus. We're desperate for more of you, Jesus. Let us be a people that have been captivated by you, Jesus. That you've become irresistible to us, Jesus. Lord, I don't care if anybody else wants you or not. I want you. If nobody else is praying it, I'll pray it. If nobody else is asking, I'll ask it. If I'm the only one, I'll do it. I want you. I don't care if it's a popular message. I don't care if it's a popular message. I want you, Jesus. You're still the most wonderful thing. You're still the fairest of 10,000. You're still the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. Jesus, you are still the most beautiful among thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. It's still you, Jesus. It's still you, Jesus. It's still you, Jesus. I won't trade performance and programs for you, Jesus. We want you. I want you. 
Thank you for listening today to the Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.